There is a a book that many of you have probably read. It's in his steps. It's been written a number of years ago, 1896. It was written by a preacher. If you've never read it, you ought to read it. It's coming from somebody's point of view that, that again, there's some things in it that you may not like, and that's fine. No book, basically, except the Bible, satisfies everybody. But the theme of the book is the idea that this preacher's preaching in his town, little town, and he says, hey, what would it be like if we would do whatever Jesus wanted? If we would ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? And so this whole novel, this, this fictional novel, is the idea of different people in that church going through the next weeks, months, asking themselves daily, what would Jesus do? And it changes their work life. It changes their home life. It's very impacting, that thought of what would Jesus do. And it's, an, it's just a captivating story to just challenge you to think. Well, one youth leader in, 18, in 1989 thought that what they wanted to do is get their teen group to really think about this every day. So they were the first group that came up with the idea of the bracelets, WWJD. They started putting them out, and you've seen them. For many years, they've kind of been a, a passing fad now, but they became extremely popular in the 90s and the early 2000s that believers would use this as a reminder that they would look down, what would Jesus do? Just to help them to remember, not just on Sundays, but during the week. As they looked down, they'd see it. What would Jesus do right now? What would Jesus do right now? And ask themselves that question. My friend, that is exactly what Philippians 2 is all about. Now, I know some of you say this is an odd Christmas message. Why don't we look at the story? I have thoroughly enjoyed the last three weeks of looking at extra, outside of the narrative, extra passages that focus on the incarnation, but not necessarily tell you the story of what happened, but they all focus on Jesus Christ. And they tell us about him and what he was like before he came and when he came and why he came. Well, Philippians 2 is one of those texts. Philippians 2 doesn't tell us about the manger. It doesn't tell us about the angels or the stars. It doesn't tell us about the wise men who came up to two years later, not at the stable. But what it does is it tells us with this whole theme of how to have joy in your life. And when we get to chapter 2 in this book, this particular passage talks about Jesus Christ. He is, the, he is the one who provides joy, the one who gives peace everlasting. It's a tremendous text. And as you read through the entire chapter, or those, those 11 verses is where we're focusing, the theme or the outline is very, very simple. If you start with verses 1 through 4 and 1 through 5 actually and look at them, you can just gloss over them real quickly. They basically, there's an exhortation. An exhortation to become more like Christ. Then what happens is starting with verse 6, he says, who, after letting this mind be in you which was in Christ, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And then after it tells us about the example of Christ, then it tells us about the exaltation of Christ. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That last section is worth another entire message. What I want to focus on is, whoops, I wanted to make this comment as well, is I want to focus on the part that was what they thought was a song verses 6 through 9 roughly, is many scholars believe that this was a hymn. 
that the early church sang. And it is pungent. It is packed full of theological truth. And then right away some of you have said, okay, I'm bored already. Because you've mentioned theological truth. I, I, my friend, this is, this is a fascinating passage in light of its entire context. But So I'm not going to go through it from the beginning to the end in chronological or logical order. I want to jump in the middle and then go back to the beginning. Because I think what helps us to study and get the most out of this text is to ask three questions. Who was Jesus? And then secondly, what did he do? And most of you can answer this, but just as a reminder this morning. And then end up with, what does he want us to do? That's all in those first few verses. And when we start and answer the question, who was Jesus, it's very clear in this text. He was eternal God. Look at, look at what he says. Very simply, the author writes, he says, who being in the form of God. And, and that idea that he uses is extremely insightful. Very, there's two different words that can show up in the, in the original language of the Bible, which was Greek. Two different words for form or substance or appearance. One of the words was morphe and the other was schema. Now the idea of morphe was your essence, your character, your nature. You have a form, okay? A human nature we all have. So we have this which gives us the intelligence, the emotions, the uh, free will. So that's our, our morphe, the unchangeable part of us. We are human and remain human. Now the other idea of form is basically your outward appearance. Your schemata. The idea of that which changes. And, and the reality is, a lot of us, our scheme has changed over the years. Yes? No? Okay. Some of you aren't sure. Okay? Has your scheme changed from when you were pre-born to being born, and then a toddler and a teenager? Were there physical changes through those years? Yes. And has your form changed? Some of you, it's changed already with your Christmas meal. Okay? Your form is shifting. Okay? Our, that's, that's the two different words. Now, in this text, he makes it very clear in the form of God, the unchangeable nature of God. Jesus came in that which is the reality of God, the essence of God, the nature of God. And in fact, he even makes a comment in emphasizing it that the writer puts, who always was and will be. That's the word being. He was forever, always in the past, and always right now, and ever in the future. He was, without a starting point, he was in the form of God. And then he even makes that comment, he didn't think it was something that he should keep to himself, that he was equal with God. The, the point of the author is very simple. He's writing in this hymn, this song that they would sing in the church. He's saying, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He's incarnate. And so he says he's eternal God. We've looked at that already. We in the last couple weeks, for those of you that haven't been here, we looked at a passage in the Gospel of John that made this very clear in the beginning. He says, was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. We highlighted that even in one of those Christmas passages that predict Jesus' coming. He is called the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. Last week we talked about that Christmas text that quotes from the Old Testament that says his name is Emmanuel, God with us. The whole point is Jesus is God and always was and always will be. And when you go through his life, 
And you look at the claims that Jesus made. During his earthly ministry, he made it so clear. He says, I am God. I am eternal God. He made it, made it very clear. To know me was to know God. He made this statement. To see me was to see God. He said to believe in me was to believe in God. He said to receive me was to receive God. He made the comment, to hate me that's to hate God. He went on to honor me was to honor God. He made the comment that, that he was one with God. He made the statement that I do the very works of God. Throughout the New the Gospels, he is making the claim, God is in me, I am God, we are part of this trinity, I am God who sat on the throne, who created, and I came in the flesh. An astounding truth that he would do that. Jesus always was and is God. He's eternal God. But then according to the text, there's a little bit more. Now we know he's God. Think that through. Keep that in your mind. He is God. In other words, he's the creator. He's the author. He's in, totally in charge. What did he do? Being God, it says, he gave up. Now I don't mean like the way you and I, we get into a tug of war, we're being, being beaten, and we give up. I don't mean that we get tired and we get worn out. You know, like it's going to be when we get finally a snowfall, and we shovel for several hours, and we give up. Okay, that's not what I mean by that giving up. I have the, in my mind that giving up is not quitting, but rather he surrendered something. He gave up something. The text talks about, in this text, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That, that is really a tough translation. Okay, that we in modern, modern world, we struggle with that translation. Let me explain thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Thought it not robbery is one word. And that one word has the idea of something that you would grab and you would take and hold it to yourself and never share with anybody. Probably the best illustration of getting a concept of what it is is going to this age group who gets a toy. Okay, And when they've got that toy, what is their natural common response when another kid comes close? It's mine and I'm not sharing. Okay, And you say, well... You know, that, that's just, you know, that's with some kids. Nah, that's with all of us, okay? We have this concept of it's mine and it's going to, I'm going to keep it mine. And we have to be taught to be able to be kind and share and things of that sort. And so this idea that Jesus didn't think in heaven, my divinity, my deity, my greatness, my abilities aren't something that I should just hold to myself and never use them to help somebody out. That's the concept. That's the idea here. He thought it not robbery that he was equal with God to just keep his divinity, his power, his abilities all to himself and never use them for the benefit of others. In fact, he came with the idea, I will use my abilities, I will use my deity to minister and to serve to others. And he goes on. The text says, what happened is, he gave up something. Okay, that something is part of his prestige, his privileges as God. He, the idea is that he's going to use his godness abilities to minister. How did he do that? He made himself of no reputation. There is, a re there, there is false theology going on right out of this verse that teach that Jesus, when he came to this earth, he emptied himself of his deity, of his divinity. That, that's not what the pa passage says. The passage says he emptied himself, but it doesn't tell us of what. 
He emptied himself. So some would say, well, he literally, here's the idea. He poured something out. Poured something out of himself, like you would pour out a glass of water. Did he pour out his deity? Did he give up his ability to an essence of God? No. No, because if he gave up his deity, that means he stopped being God. Then he wasn't eternal God. Okay, and so there's, there's a conflict if you think that, if you say that. That's a false teaching. It's a heresy. So you and I have to ask the question, what did Jesus, who was God Almighty, coming in the flesh, when he came in the flesh, what did he give up? I suggest to you that one of the things he gave up, as I already put in the notes, he gave up his prestige, his privileges of what he enjoyed as God in heaven. What I mean by that is this. Jesus gave up the glory, the worship that he enjoyed in heaven. I'm going to take you back to a story that most every one of you know. There's a story when uh, Isaiah the prophet is all of a sudden able to see into the throne room of heaven. Do you remember this account? This is while he's in the throne room of heaven. He sees the angels, the seraphim around the throne of God. And they are yelling out what three words? Or what word three times? Holy, holy, holy. They're giving worship. And it says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The angels are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Who did he see? According to John 12, these things said Isaiah when he saw Jesus in his glory. And he spake of Jesus. In other words, before Jesus came to this earth, he was on the throne room and the angels were singing, glory, glory, glory to you. Holy, holy, holy Jesus. But he gave that up. He gave up that accolades, that worship, that prestige that he enjoyed. In fact, we read Jesus praying, now, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was begun. Give me back that which I have emptied myself. That which I didn't hold when I came down to this earth, I gave up some of that glory, some of that worship. And we all know that. Did people bow down to Jesus and worship him and call him holy, holy, holy? No. What did the Jews as a nation do? They rejected him. He gave up that which was well deserving and which he should have had that the angels knew to give him. He came down to this earth. He came down and gave up that glory. Something else he gave up. He gave up the riches of heaven. What I mean, that, what I mean by that is, is the comfort, the beauty, the environment. We read in scriptures that it says this, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus that though he was rich, he gave it all up. He gave it all up to become poor. Why? For our benefit. So that through his poverty, his, what he gave up, we might be rich. Well, we, we, we understand how this works in the reverse. There are accounts of people who seek after riches. Do you know anybody whose whole goal in life is to become wealthy? Have you ever heard of anybody? Okay, so we go back a little bit of history. We read about some accounts. Like individuals like a William Durant, who in the very early years of the car industry growing, he was one of those geniuses in business and in invention. He yoked up with a couple other individuals that you see the names Buick and Chevrolet, who they formed General Motors. The company became just you know, a tremendous uh, auto empire. 
Well, Durant, it is estimated that some 50 different people he worked with all became millionaires because of his influence, his guidance, and his direction that he gave them. So every one of us would say, I'd like to know that guy. Okay. But here's what happened to Durant. He lost everything. He lost all of his millions. Those others, they, they succeeded and went on. But he ended up, the one who was, many thinking, the genius behind a lot of those millionaires, he ended up, when he was later in life, totally broke his job. He had to work full-time as a, in a bowling alley, setting up bowling pins because that's how poor he became. You know, we look at that and say, oh, it's a sad story. A man who made it, and then he lost everything. Most people here, none of us here would say, that's what I want to do. I want to have a story where I give up everything, and I become nothing. And I become, to the point at the end of my life, that I just have to eke by in my existence. We don't think that way. We think just the opposite. We think for our kids just the opposite. We want them to advance, to improve. But here's what Jesus is. Jesus is one who already had everything, but he gave it all up. Why? For your sake. For my sake. Then we might become rich. He impoverished himself. He gave up all of that which he possessed and he owned and he had control over and he could manipulate to enjoy that comfort and that rich and riches and quote-unquote without being irreverent, that lifestyle. He gave up all the accolades. And when he comes to the earth, you read in the scriptures that Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. You read that he borrowed things. He borrowed a manger to be born in. He borrowed a boat in order to go into the sea. He borrowed homes to sleep in. He had to borrow a donkey to ride in Jerusalem. He had to borrow a room to have the Last Supper. He's one who even, he ended up, he borrowed a tomb when he was buried. He gave up everything. You and I, we would want these things planned. And some of us have already said, okay, that's, that I, I get the mortgage. I give all this. We, we are more possession-oriented and comfort-oriented. But Jesus wasn't. Jesus, who was almighty God, who had everything possession-wise, he gave it up for you, for me. Not only does he give that up, but he also gave up his independence, not just to the privileges and the prestige of being God. He gave up as well his independence. The passage goes on, it says, that it's, as the comments is, that he thought it not Robert to be equal to God, but he made himself, he poured out and took upon him the form of a servant. And the, very clear. Now, it makes it clear that he didn't do what some of you did last week. Some of you last weekend, you acted a role during the reenactment. You put on a costume and you became a Roman soldier. You became one of those shepherds that visited the nativity. You became crazy in people, okay? That were, by the way, great job. You became, you know, the guides. You became the cynic who didn't want anything to do with the others. And you, would, you wanted nothing to do with Mary and Joseph as one of their relatives, and you guys did a phenomenal job. But you were acting. And how long did you carry out that role? Have you been doing that this whole week? Have you been walking around still in that mindset? I don't think so. You put that on for just a short period of time to do the reenactment. And you did a great job in doing that. When Jesus came, he wasn't playing a role just for a little bit of time. 
He took upon himself the form, the morphe. He became a doulos, a slave, a servant. Gave up all that prestige, and what did he seek after? He sought after the lack of individual freedom, individual independence. He sought after giving up his own rights, his own decision-making at times, for you, for me. It goes on in the text, talks about that idea that Jesus gave up his own will to say, Father, I will serve you and serve others. Instead of doing what I want, I will do what you want. And how many times in the scriptures do we read, and this isn't all of the passages, but there are multiple passages that say, he knew in his mind, I gave up my own thing. Don't you know, Mom and Dad, I must be about my father's business? Don't you know that the Son of Man can do nothing of himself, but he does only what the Father tells him? My own will, I do nothing, but I seek not my own will, but the will of him that sent me. I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. He was led of the Spirit. Though he were a son, he learned obedience. Not my will, but thine be done. In fact, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. This is what he gave up. Please, please stay with me. This, we're going to bring this all together and it is, for me, one of the most challenging thoughts to begin a new year. Jesus gave up all of this. Boy, what a difference. What a difference between Jesus and Satan who is the God of this world and the world system. Just pause for a second and think about Jesus' attitude and what the world says how to live by. You think about it, Jesus was all about Thy will be done. What was Satan and often the world's idea? My will be done. Think about it. This is the creator willing to stoop to become a creature. What was the opposite? It was the creature in Satan wanting to become what? The creator. Okay? Here is what we have, a totally submissive spirit. But Satan, who has infected the world, he has created not a submissive spirit, but rather a subversive spirit. Ignore God. Don't have anything to do with him. Get busy. Seek your own will. And in this text, he's calling us to stop and think about who Jesus was and what he did. How Jesus gave up his prestige, he gave up his independence, And he gave up his own earthly life. The passage goes on and makes it very clear that he was made in the likeness of a man. The word was made talks about one singular event. He was born. He was born. There was a birth time, just like there was in your life. That all of a sudden, he took on the likeness. The total exact likeness like you and me. He wasn't some ghost. He wasn't some spirit. He was a people in a body that had fingers and toes and eyes and ears, like you, like me. He took on real flesh. And in this real flesh, he became like a man. The appearance of a man. And now they use schemata. Why? Because Jesus, as he took on this likeness of a man, did his body change in the years that he went from his birth to his death? Yes, no. He went through the same growth process that we do. And so it says here he is, in the form of a man. So we think, okay, at 
at the manger scene, when he comes to be born, he takes on a real physical body. A body that, does he still have that body, that resurrected body? Yes or no? He does. He's in heaven. Remember, he ascended with that body. So Jesus became, this God became man, 100% God, man. He was obedient unto death. He gave his life, even he says on the cross, which if you read these passages in Deuteronomy, the worst idea for a Jew for being put to death was the cross. It was just this, there was a stigma to it. There was, there was a shame to the cross as part of a means of execution. Jesus took on, for in a Jewish mind where he grew up, the, the most vulgar type of a death for you, for me. He gave this up. He gave up his life. Why? To minister to us, to provide salvation to us. Because here he was in heaven and he said, in order to rescue these people, I'm, I'm going to come down from heaven and I'm going to become one of them and I will give my life so that they can have forgiveness of sins because they can't get it any other way. It's only by my life and death and, and that I'm going to be able to bring them life. He came not to minister or not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a payment a payment for what you and I deserve. We deserve the punishment of death or separation from God. But he made his life a payment in order to cross out that debt. He took our death upon himself in that separation. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. We read that he, gave, he came into this world not to condemn, but that the, through the world, through him might be saved, might be rescued from our sins and the damnation of it. Having made peace, that barrier that stood between us and God, he broke it down through his own shedding of his blood, his death on Calvary. He says that without the shedding of blood, without the death of somebody who was sinless, we would not get into heaven. He gave his life, his blood was shed so that we could have forgiveness. As a result, he made the payment and all we have to do is call upon his name and we shall be saved. To repent. That's his ministering spirit. That's the gift that we talk about at Christmas. The gift of eternal life. That Jesus Christ has already paid for. He offers it to you with your name on it but it's not yours until you, you take it. You take it and say, I'm going to make it my own. I'm going to repent of my sins and call upon Jesus. I recognize that he gave his life, not because he did evil. He did no sin. He gave his life because he loved me. And he put his life in my place, took my punishment of hell and damnation upon himself on the cross and he paid it all so that he was able to cry, it is paid in full, it is finished. And all we have to do is accept it. Believe that that's what he's done for us. If you have never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, his forgiveness and his salvation he offers, you should do that. You should do that. You shouldn't delay. He is the only way you're going to get into heaven. There is none other name given amongst men whereby we must be saved. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by him. 
He gave up his life for you to have eternal life. Call upon him. Pray to him. Ask him to forgive you of all your sins, past, present, and future. The sins that cost Jesus his life. And ask him to give you the forgiveness that he has paid for that will come with the gift of eternal life. You need to pray. You need to ask him. If you haven't done that, before you leave this morning, won't you do that? Won't you pray and ask Christ to give you that gift that he has paid for? That's, that's all mentioned in this passage. And it's a wonderful theme. It's a tremendous theme. But that's not why he wrote this text. There is something much deeper for the, to those of us who have already called upon Christ. This passage isn't to the lost, though we've, we can explain it to those who don't know Christ and say, please call upon him. This text was written to those who are believers already. Why did he just spend all this time explaining to us what Jesus did? It's a reminder. It's a reminder. Remember our outline? It starts off with an exhortation to be Christ-like, and then it gives us an example of what Christ did, and then talks about his exaltation. We said to get the real meaning, you ask, who was Jesus? What did he do? What does he want? What we just did is we just did this first part. The example, who he was, what he did. He was eternal God who gave up his prestige, his liberties and rights, his very life, to minister to others. What's the exhortation? What is the gist of this text really all about? The real theme of the text is this. What does he want us to do? It leads us to this thought that the incarnation of Jesus Christ is to be our motivation for loving, humble service one to another. That's the theme of this text. Now, we don't want to diminish the salvation he provides. We need that. But for those of us who have already accepted his gift, all of what we just talked about, his being God, how much he gave up, was to be an example to you to be willing to give up for others. To serve other people. To go out of your way to minister. Oh, that is so hard in this day and age. Because in this day and age, who do we get encouraged to focus upon? Whose rights are we supposed to be standing up for? In this day and age, is there a tendency towards perverting even justice at times? Is there times where people get really silly just to get ahead of others? See, let me, let me give you silly illustrations. These are true. But just some silly illustrations of where we're at in this society that we live in. That this society that says, look out for yourself. Take advantage of others. Promote yourself. Get more money by getting other people. George Wills has a column, and in this column he talked about silly, frivolous lawsuits that have happened in recent years in America. One of these is of a 17-year-old Maryland girl. She wanted to play varsity football on the guys' team. So they went to the school board, 
And her parents threatened, if you don't let our 17-year-old girl play on the boys' varsity football team, we're going to sue the school for discrimination. So they let her play. They said she can be on the team. The first scrimmage took place. And in the first scrimmage, she ended up getting hurt because somebody tackled her. So her family sued the school board because they had not warned us, and I quote, of the potential risk of serious injury inherent in the sport of football. She won $1.5 million. Was that selfish? What about this one? Amber Carson of Pennsylvania. She, sp- there, she uh, slipped on some soda that was spilled on the floor of the restaurant she was in, and she fell down, and she sued the restaurant for damages that were to her because of her fall. She won $113,000. Even though the reason the soda was spilled, she had gotten mad at her boyfriend, and she splashed him in the face with the soda that went to the floor, and when she got up to store him out, she fell on the soda she spilled. But she won $113,000. Now please, don't get any of this in your mind, okay? We're trying to use these as negative illustrations. Kathleen Robertson of Texas sues a a furniture store and she wins $85,000. The reason being, she's shopping in this furniture store. And while she's shopping, somebody's toddler comes racing in front of her and she trips and she falls down and injures her ankle. And so she gets $85,000, despite the fact that guess whose toddler it was? It was hers. It was her toddler out of control. How about Carl Truman, 19-year-old from L.A., California, who won $75,000 in a settlement from his neighbor for damages to his hand because he was at the back tire of the neighbor's car and the neighbor backed over his hand. And he won the money. Now, what they didn't express and consider was, at the moment this happened, he was trying to steal the hubcaps from the neighbor's car. But they said, that's okay. The neighbor's responsible. How about this one? This gal, by the name of, um, oh, they don't give her name. She sued Honda and won $65 million. The reason being is that her car ended up in a lake And her family said she couldn't get the seatbelt unbuckled in time, and she drowned, and it's very tragic. However, when it went to a higher court, the judge overruled because all the tests that had been presented in the first trial proved she was extremely drunk, and she had driven her car backwards at a high speed into the lake. And the family's, uh, the, the Honda's response was, it wasn't necessarily the seatbelt that was at fault. It was her inability to take care of it. Then we have this one case where a man, this is, this is, a, this is a terrible illustration, Jerry Williams of Arkansas. He won $15,000 from his neighbor because he was attacked by the neighbor's dog. He wanted a lot more, but one of the jurists held out because they thought that maybe, just maybe, he had some responsibility. You see, he was in the neighbor's yard, and the neighbor's dog was was not out loose, but he was there for over an hour with a pellet gun shooting at the dog. So the dog finally attacked him, and he wins the lawsuit. 
Do we live in a backwards society? That's all about who? It's all about me. And we hear this stuff and we think, ooh, ah, what can I do with my neighbor to get ahead? And this passage says we are to think always the opposite. We are to be like Jesus Christ. That we give up our privileges, give up our riches, even give up of our life, our times, our treasures, our talents to minister to others. We are to be individuals that would give up our comfort to go out of our way to help somebody else. We are to be individuals who would initiate, like Jesus did, visiting someone who is lonely. Visiting somebody who is hurting. And over the Christmas holiday, with all of our busyness, have we even stopped to think, what about the widows? Have we even stopped about forgiving someone who hurt us? Or do we hold the grudge and not going to be in the same house they are during the holidays? Are are we going to have the attitude that Jesus did? That he is going to promote unity. In fact, that's the theme where he says in this passage, verse 4, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you which is in Christ. Promote unity. Not your rights, but the unity of the body. We're supposed to be individuals that put others before us. Well, we've seen that at the lines of the store lately, haven't we? We're supposed to be individuals that we will be so concerned about others, we will give up time to pray for them, to write encouraging notes, to make a phone call, to send an email, to make a visit. Christ did that for us. He's God. He gave up so much for us. We're supposed to be doing that for others. We're supposed to be seeking to share God's word like he did. We're supposed to be teaching God's word in some way. Having a willing spirit that even though it takes from our busy schedules, it takes from our time to put a lesson together and to teach it to the kids or a Bible study to somebody in your neighborhood. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ. To have an attitude of reaching out to individuals, to ministering to other people, To going out of your way, willingly giving up what you consider really, really important. That's the theme. Let this mind be in you. That eternal God had. His position in his life was not something that he was to keep to himself for his own enjoyment. But rather, he ministered to others. He took the form of a servant. Who have you served This last week. Who have you enslaved yourself to? I'm not talking your employer. I'm talking voluntarily. You have served others. That's what we're called to do. Not just think about it. Do it. Go out of your way to minister to others. So. The deal in our house. She buys the groceries. I eat them. It's a wonderful arrangement, okay? So, Deb goes, buys the groceries. She pulls into the garage. She's got a whole trunk full of groceries. I'm going to have a servant's attitude. Get them in here, Deb! 
keep it up, you're doing a great job. You're up to just the tenth, the tenth load you're carrying in. I'm praying for you. Keep it up. No, what, what's the servant's attitude? Don't, don't say go shopping. Please don't say that. That, 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 that. that would be indulging in sin. Okay, so let's... What would be the right attitude to serve my wife? Go out and carry him in. Not just think about it, but to actually do it. I'll give you a story about somebody who actually did this. A true story. It's written in a book called Friendship. And in this book, what happens is the author is sharing with his, uh, sharing a true story from a friend of his who is writing his son. This man who is writing this little note to his son, he's an older man now. His son is growing. And he's talking about his situation in life. As he got into later years, what happened to him is he was injured and he became totally, totally dependent upon his wife. He could no longer feed himself, dress himself, bathe himself at all. Paralegic, paralegic plegic, excuse me. And totally at the needs of others having to help him out. He's writing to his son. He makes this comment. He says, son, few men know what it's like to go out for dinner when it entails what it does for your mother and I. For us, it means that she has to dress me, shave me, brush my teeth, comb my hair, wheel me out of the house and into the garage. She takes the pedals off my wheelchair, stands me up, then turns me and sits me down in the seat. Then she twists me around so that I'm comfortable in the chair, in the car. Folding, she then folds up the wheelchair, puts it in the car, goes around to the other side of the car, starts it up, backs it out, then gets out of the car to close the garage door, get back in the car, and drive off to the restaurant. Then she gets out of the car, unfolds the wheelchair, opens the door, spins me around, stands me up, seats me in the wheelchair, pushes the pedals out, closes, locks the doors of the car, wheels me into the restaurant, then takes the pedals off the wheelchair so I won't be uncomfortable at the table. We sit there and we have dinner, which means she feeds me one bite at a time throughout the entire meal. When it's over, she pays the bill. She pushes me out to the car again. She reverses the same tedious routine. And when it's all over and finished... And we're back inside the house. Your mother looks at me and says, Honey, thank you for taking me out to dinner. I never know quite what to say. That's a servant's heart. Is that your heart? What I've done this morning is I put a, some containers out here with those dated bracelets, WWJD. With the idea that if you would like to challenge yourself with a practical reminder, grab one of the bracelets, wear it, live it by asking yourself, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? The greatest gift you can give somebody is to copy them, to mimic them. Mimic Jesus Christ this holiday season. Father, help us. Help us to magnify Christ, to lift him up, to serve others, to put others' interests ahead of our own interest, to give in, to give up, to go out of our way, to be more like Christ in a ministering, humble spirit 
towards brothers and sisters, towards family, towards church family. Help us not to just think about it. Help us to actually do it. Help us to make a real impact upon relatives and neighbors by portraying a selflessness that is close to the selflessness of the eternal God who came in the flesh. While your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, if there's anyone here who has yet to call upon that eternal God, that Christ in the flesh is your Savior, won't you do that right now? Won't you pray right now as you're there in that seat and ask Christ to forgive you of your sins and to give you the gift of eternal life? For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Afterwards, if you have questions, if you'd like to talk, I'm going to hang around here at the front and I'll gladly get somebody to talk with you in private to answer more of your questions so you can be sure you're on your way to heaven, that you've accepted that gift of salvation that Jesus offers. But for those of you who have already done that, would you take the challenge this week and live hourly, daily, with this in your mind, what would Jesus do? Father, help us to do this for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.